When you look into the mirror, what do you see? A sinner? A saint? Something good? Something not so good? Do you see someone who is too old, too fat, too worn out, too worn down? I wonder how many of us even bother to look anymore. After seeing ourselves on Zoom for two years and being given permission to hide the rest of ourselves from the world, I wonder how many of us are still hiding even from ourselves in the morning. Years ago, you might remember Al Franken, the now-canceled comedian and former U.S. Senator, how he played Stuart Smalley on Saturday Night Live. The character always dressed in a light blue cardigan sweater and a yellow button-down shirt. The voiceover, as a word of warning, perhaps a disclaimer, introduced him as a caring nurturer a member of several 12-step programs, but not a licensed therapist. Smalley began each episode of Daily Affirmation, his mock self-help show, by looking into a mirror and convincing himself that what was about to happen was going to be good. I'm going to do a terrific show today, he said, and I'm going to help people. Because I'm good enough, I'm smart enough, and doggone it, people like me. But by the end of each skit, those words no longer seemed to apply. Smalley's emotional baggage always seemed to catch up with him in one way or another. He ended in tears or distraught and turned to the mirror where he started, this time trying to convince himself that it was true, I'm good enough, I'm smart enough, and doggone it, people like me. But the second time around, there wasn't quite the convincing tone in his voice. In a way, Paul, in his letter to the Corinthians that we heard from today, is trying to convince us to remember and to hold on to what we see in the mirror. All of us, he writes, with unveiled faces, see the glory of the Lord as though reflected in a mirror. We are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory into another, for this comes from the Lord, the Spirit. Paul wants the Christians in Corinth to look into the mirror and remember that what they see might be imperfect and broken people, but those people are being made whole, are being made perfect by the God who has united them to God's own glory and God's Son, Jesus Christ. But how are we supposed to see that when we look into our own mirror? Paul used a story that was familiar to his readers to try to get that point across, to try to help them figure out what it means to undergo that sort of glorious transformation. He reminded them of the story of Moses coming down from Mount Sinai with the tablets in his hand and his face shining bright like the sun. It's a strange story, isn't it? Strange. And perhaps what's even stranger is that although 
we would expect the story to be replete with examples of Moses' shining face casting God's light upon God's people. That shining face is only mentioned once. Here in Exodus 34, it's, it's as if it's a spiritual truth that then gets left behind, almost forgotten, sort of a mystery as much as anything. The Exodus story, strange, but presents it pretty plainly. After spending 40 days and 40 nights not eating or drinking and talking with God, Moses came down and the glory of God was reflected off of his face. That shining face was a scary thing to behold and the Israelites refused to come near. But Moses had something he needed to tell them, so he begged them to come closer. And once they were close enough to hear his voice, he told them everything that the Lord had spoken. But still his face left them uncomfortable. So the Bible tells us that Moses put a veil over his face to make it possible for him to continue to be among God's people, the people of Israel. That's strange enough. But over the thousand or more years after that story took place, different traditions seemed to arise based on that story. New spiritual ways of hearing and telling this familiar tale. Traditions that Paul seems to know. He latches on to one of them and tells the story of Moses but twists it a little bit in ways that are almost unrecognizable. Paul notes that Moses put a veil over his face. That part is familiar enough to us. But Paul explains that Moses put that veil on his face to keep the people of Israel from gazing at the end of the glory that was being set aside. In other words, Moses put a veil on his face because that light, that glory, had begun to fade. Paul's not making that up. He's borrowing from a long rabbinical tradition, the spiritual way of reading this story, a tradition that weaves different threads together to tell a familiar story in a new way. One of those threads was the fact that later on in Exodus, Moses wasn't allowed to enter the tent of meeting because God's glory was there. And then later on in Numbers, Moses is described as the meekest human on the earth. And still later in Deuteronomy, we're told that Moses wasn't allowed to enter the land of Canaan because he had disobeyed God. Those threads were woven together in order to tell kind of a new story that indeed that glory that had shone on Moses' face so brightly when he came down the mountain, after a while, it began to fade. And the people were discouraged even scared to see that that glory had begun to fade on the face of the prophet in whom they put their trust. Paul borrows from that tradition and gives it back to the people in a way they must have known because Paul doesn't bother to explain it. They all knew it in a way that perhaps we have forgotten over the years. But when he tells that strange version of the story, Paul seems to refocus it through a Christian lens and lays a, a gospel framework on top of that familiar Jewish story. When the Old Covenant, the Law of Moses, is read, Paul explains, that same veil, 
still covers the hearts and minds of those who belong to God in that old way of belonging. And only in Christ, Paul wrote, is that veil set aside. Now, for a long time, Christian preachers have used texts like that to make anti-Judaic or even anti-Semitic points. That's not what the Bible tells. It's been twisted and misused in unfaithful and unspiritual ways. This, instead, isn't Paul's way of throwing aside the Jewish tradition, but celebrating what is different or distinct about the Christian way of encountering God. As a faithful Jew, Paul celebrated all that he had accomplished in his Jewish life. He valued it deeply. But when he encountered Jesus, he discovered a different way of belonging to God. One that allowed non-Jews, Gentiles, to become adopted as children of God without having to convert to those distinctly Jewish practices of the Old Covenant. Which means that those Gentile converts, Christians, because of their baptism into Christ, they had received the Holy Spirit, not as a garment that they might wear, but as God living within them. And because we belong to God, not through the customs we practice, but because of the one who lives inside of us, that glory shines on our faces not as a reflection of a momentary encounter with the divine, but as a life spent with God living inside of us. In other words, that, that light, that glory begins to shine from within so that others might see it. And because in the Christian tradition, that radiance comes not from an external encounter, but from the internal God who lives within us, there's no worry that that glory might fade away so we don't have to worry about hiding from it, of, of covering it up in case it might disappear before we grasped it. So when we look at ourselves in the mirror, what Paul wants us to see are broken and imperfect people who are already being transformed into the glorious image of Christ, one degree of glory at a time. It's not our doing, it's God's doing. It's God's gift to us, the work of the Spirit within us. When that work takes place, when that divine nature shines within us, it not only changes who we see in the mirror, but how we see ourselves in the rest of the world. Since then, we have such a hope, Paul writes, we act with great boldness. Doesn't it make sense that if God is living within us, not something we chase after, but something we find in here, that we would find the courage and power to do great things in God's name? Scholars think that Paul might have laid another form of wordplay upon this passage in Aramaic, which might have been on Paul's mind as he was writing this letter in Greek. The word for boldness literally means to uncover one's face. As in, those who are bold are those who are able to look us in the eye, not worried about hiding anything. 
So if in Christ that veil has been removed because that glory dwells within us, we can risk everything for the sake of the one who dwells inside of us, whose light beams even from our faces. If that light grows within us, we need look no further away than a mirror to see the one whom God has equipped to do bold things in God's name. What would you do if you knew that God had already given you everything you need to succeed? What risk would you take? What venture would you take on if you looked in the mirror and recognized not only the person looking back at you, but the brightness of God's glory shining in your face? What would be possible if it were not you alone being asked to bear up that cross, but the Christ who lives within you bearing it on your behalf. You are already being transformed into the glory of Christ. Let your light shine so that the whole world might see and know.